0: Welcome to Spark Science, where we share stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber-DeGraff, an astrophysicist at Western Washington University. Today, we are talking about the science behind science communication. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Yeo, and she studies how humor is used to communicate scientific information on social media. We also discussed various emotions that come up when attempting to persuade somebody to trust science, which is sadly always a relevant topic. We hope you enjoy our meta-conversation about what research says about how science is shared. Today we are going to talk about the intersection between humor and science communication. I have with me today Dr. Sarah Yo. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for calling
1: in. Great to be here, thank you. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah
0: but you you do specialize in this idea of like translating science how did you how did you get into this um, field and especially the humor part because I love that
1: so uh, it's actually a long, convoluted story because I started my graduate well my um, my undergraduate degree is in oceanography and I uh, minored in chemistry, actually. I thought I was going to be a chemical oceanographer. Uh, my first master's degree is in oceanography, but it turns out I'm a microbial ecologist and, and I studied microbial ecosystem dynamics, you know, microbial dynamics in the surface waters of the ocean uh, in Hawaii for that. And then I went to Unless the University been of Wisconsin. <laughs> because that's what one does is one moves from Honolulu to Madison, Wisconsin, which both of which are great cities, actually. Right.
0: Similar Um, climate.
1: Very similar climate. So I was actually in an environmental engineering PhD program, and I was going to study similar ecosystems, aquatic ecosystems in um, northern Wisconsin, where there are a lot of bogs and lakes. And while I was in that program, I took a science communication course. They had these engineering professional development courses and science communication was one of them. Um, And I took this course partly with Sharon Dunwoody. I think it was a co-taught course. Um, But in any event, I found myself in a class with Sharon Dunwoody and she introduced me to science communication and research in science communication. And I ended up switching my program entirely, and I went to a a smaller, small department uh, known as Life Sciences Communication at the University of Wisconsin, and I got my master's and my PhD there.
0: So, I mean, that's, uh, we will get into, like, the humor and what you were talking about, you looking at social media and how people share science, but I really want to touch on this thing right now, or this concept of science communication as an actual field, and that's something that's kind of new, like, in your experience, how new is that, and Like, when was the first time you heard there was an actual program dedicated to that? Yeah,
1: I'd have to say that was for me in um, 2010, actually. So 2010 is when I switched into this program. So sometime between 2008 and 2010 is when I took this class that was completely eye-opening for me. And um, that's kind of the first time I'd heard there was this field of research and a whole area of practice, right? And of course, you know, when you look back, you think that's kind of naive because, we communicate science all the time and that in essence is science communication right we talk talk about science all the time um but the research in science communication was very new to me um and i think people are still kind of discovering it all the time now right that there is a field of research like a subfield of communication dedicated to studying how people come to understand science from what they see in media from what they see online and social media And actually the humor stuff is pretty new for me. So my dissertation was primarily focused on um, how we select science information, right? Based on values that we have. Yeah, yeah. Um, And my population of interest is generally adults in the US. So I haven't actually done much international work yet. Um, And I don't generally study people under the age of 18 because I'm sort of interested as a whole in how the U S population finds information about science. Right. Uh, and so a lot of my dissertation work is based on people's values, worldviews, sort of these predispositions that, you know, tend to cause us to pick science from one type of source or
0: another. For me personally, I'm, I'm very interested in what you're talking about right now, because there's been a lot of programs that are very, um, skills-based, like this is how you become a science journalist. This is how you write an article. But what you're talking about is different, right? You're talking about how, you know, the creator of that material and the audience interact and like how it's actually coming through and, you know, how effective is it? What is effective? All that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. I, you know, and at my very core, I'm, I'm, I'm a social scientist right? I study how people come to form attitudes, how they form their behavioral intentions. And I just look at how media and specifically media about science influence that. Yeah. And it's really interesting. There is a whole area, like you were saying, that comes with like the skills based courses. Like practitioner based. Practitioner. And so there are these sort of big camps, I think, in the field of science communication um, of practitioners and then researchers. And when I say big, I actually, actually think the practitioner camp is much larger yeah. than the researcher camp. Um, but then there's also trainers, right? So there's kind of in this ecology of science communication, there's like different groups, and some are more aware of others. And, and I think there is really a lack of a kind of researchers and practitioners working together and collaborating, right, for very many reasons. Yeah, um,
0: if, if only just, like, geographically and, like, not being in the same department.
1: Right, yeah, and, and that, like, this area of research can, is sometimes like, oh, wait, there's a whole area of research? Yeah. That, you know, um, and so I like to think about this. I have some colleagues, John Besley and Anthony Dudo, uh, from Michigan State and UT Austin, who talk about this as strategic science communication, right? Mm. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's helpful like to think about it, it that way, right? <laughs> um, it's sort of like, we don't ever like to use the terms public relations or marketing, right? But all of this falls under sort of a broader umbrella of strategic communication, I think. Right. Um, as when, when, well, I'm, I'm still a scientist, right? I'm still a social scientist. But when I was like a biologist or a microbial ecologist, my whole way of practicing science communication, when I, I used to do a lot of outreach events, a lot of that was based on the deficit model, right? And right. so when I learned about the deficit model, this is like a huge epiphany for me in my graduate career. And I was like, well, I've been doing this all wrong.
0: Um, well, explain to our listeners what the deficit model is. Just, Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, the knowledge deficit model is predicated on this idea of scientific literacy, right? That populations, that adults in the U.S. should have some level of scientific literacy. And so, if they know more about the science, whatever the topic may be, they're just going to have a better attitude about it, or uh, an or they'll attitude believe that, you. or they'll believe you, right? <laughs> or an attitude that aligns with what the experts think. So a really good example I like to use is climate change you know sometimes we'll say well if people only knew about the science of climate change they would see right that the earth is warming at an alarming rate and that it's caused by humans right it's anthropogenic um and that sort of nicely captures what the deficit model looks like right and because as scientists at an at an institution that produces knowledge right and as a scientist that produces knowledge if it's just a deficit of information and a deficit of knowledge. We can really easily fill that, right? But we know that knowledge is important, but it's not the only thing that changes people's attitudes or that influences people's opinions about scientific issues.
0: There has to be a way it needs to get into your brain, right? (laughs) Like it has to go in somehow, or you have to be able to interact with that knowledge. And there's so many other things at play here.
1: Right. And there's actually um, evidence in a lot of research that shows that people who tend to be more knowledgeable about something are also better equipped to counter argue right so they have this sort of set view about something or an existing attitude about something even if you just give more information to them the more sophisticated they are the better equipped they are to counter argue that right to rationalize their position right um and so you know we like to think of ourselves as being rational but the truth is we're really
0: good rationalizers that's a that's a it's a it's a confusing sentence but it's totally true right like we we feel like we'll be able to give this information that seems logical to somebody else but like you're saying they can rationalize that it probably isn't true or it has holes they can rationalize the holes right right yeah 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 we're
1: good our human brain is good at rationalizing the holes as you as we put it right
0: we're speaking with Dr. Sarah Yeo about how to talk to portions of the public that resist science. And so to get to the point of humor, you're saying there is this resistance. We've all seen it. Our listeners have seen it. You know, relatives, uh, skepticism that's taken to a different level that might not be helpful. <laughs> so how do we get um, people to kind of interact with this information in a way that's disarming? Like how do we, or like relatable in a way that isn't, um, where they're not gonna rationalize the holes, right? They're gonna be able to have fun with the information. And that, and you are saying like social media and which tweets they, you know, they like. And so can you tell us more about how you got into that and tell us more about that work?
1: Yeah, so um, again, a lot of my work up until I started on the humor work and before that, this more emotional work, um, has been a lot about cognitive ideas, right? How our, you know, predispositions influence how we form attitudes. But there's a huge literature that talks about how we use our emotions and feelings and affect, which is kind of a broader term, to um, make decisions, you know, everyday decisions and influence how we form our opinions and our attitudes, right? And so there's Uh, a little bit of work so if we look at health communication for example the idea of a fear appeal right scaring people into doing something we can think back to the um anti-smoking public service announcements uh and how even in some countries now so i'm from malaysia and in my country they they still have on cigarette boxes right very graphic images of organs that you know don't look great like smokers organs that don't look great right well
0: I, i let's let's kind of touch on that because i remember listening to a hidden brain i've talked about this i believe on previous shows maybe it's been cut but there's an episode of on of hidden brains called facts aren't enough and he talks about how like fear will keep you from doing something so having these graphic images on the cigarette box will keep you it helps with inaction but for action like in climate change and doing something that is hard to conceptualize you have to give people hope right so and sometimes there are these boomerang effects right where okay. it's like too
1: scary and so i just kind of as a human being ignore that information right right um, and so there's, there's, you know, and this is why I think like how we use emotion or how we think about emotion in science communication is kind of an empirical question, right? Because it's like, well, you want to give people hope, you don't want to scare them too much, but what is too much? Right, right. And um, so I have recently studied before I started on this humor work, I was studying disgust and microbiomes. Um, and, you know, a lot of, microbiome information you see online is about fecal microbiota transplants. So you can look up uh, videos of of fecal microbiota transplants, FMTs, and how to do it at home, how to transplant healthy stool into somebody who has an infection, right? Somebody who's not healthy to get their gut microbiome to be
0: healthier. Right. And that just seems like a bad idea to be doing any (laughs) sort of Transplant, I mean, it's, it says transplant. Why would you do any sort of transplant at home without any medical expertise? But um, this is what got me to want to reach out to you because um, we were at this virtual conference and you were showing these slides of basically poop and you like had the word poop in various places or at least once I, I remember. And I was like, I need to talk to this person
1: so <laughs> yeah and this idea of like disgust is something that you know emotions when we have when we feel emotions they um sort of generate these tendencies in us right generally they're like approach tendencies or avoidance tendencies and you can see how something like disgust might cause us to avoid something um and in the context of microbiomes if and fecal microbiota transplants F- fmts are sort of an approved uh therapy right not at home but and approved therapy. And so um, the, the reaction of disgust and moving away from it might cause people to perceive more risks in right, the modification of microbiomes. And in fact, that is what
0: we found, right? If people feel more disgusted about it, they find it more risky. But you can also use that disgust and spin it, right? And spin it into humor, right? Anything that is disgusting to any human, there's a way a comedian can make it funny, right?
1: there certainly could be yeah somebody way funnier than i am there's certainly a way and i think you know there've been a couple of uh, conversations that i should bring up here about the ethical the ethical means of using right the ethical considerations of using this type of um like using people's emotions to get them to do something right some people like i think uh sometimes this comes up in at conferences where i've presented this you know uh practitioners in particular are sort of like well is it ethical to use an emotion to make people feel something to then change their opinion about something
0: yeah and i actually asked that question at the conference and i and i i think it was a good answer it's not it's not that we're using somebody's emotions that we're being aware of those emotions right there there is a fine line between being aware and um navigating those emotions versus using the emotions right and right there is a goal right for your for the the
1: reason you communicate science there is a goal for that right and achieving that goal and knowing how emotions can help you achieve that goal and understanding that i think is is powerful and it's the same idea with using humor right there's quite often recommendations to use humor when communicating about science because intuitively we feel like that's something that would be useful that would help right that would make science uh more accessible and more acceptable to others um, but we don't actually have a ton of empirical evidence about that. And if we look <laughs> on on social media at the types of science humor, um, so I showed a couple of examples at this virtual conference. So overly honest methods is one, review for science. These are some of the hashtags that people use and fieldwork fail. A lot of these are satirical. Can you tell right? us those so hashtags one more time? Yeah, so it's uh, the hashtag overly honest methods, um, fieldwork fail, and there's review for science. And I'm sure there are other ones, but these were sort of the ones that stood out to me. Overly honest methods in particular, and this is actually what started me on this like track of humor. Um, Because in other communication literatures and other subfields, like political communication, you can imagine there's been quite a bit done on humor and political communication because of Jon Stewart, Trevor Noah, right? Stephen Colbert. And um, what researchers find is that- Samantha
0: I just want to Samantha, right? Oh, yeah, ladies, Samantha sorry. B.
1: <laughs> this is true. A lot of the research was actually done um, prior to Samantha B. Okay, but I, I like that we're bringing her up too because I think she's pretty hilarious. Um, but so a lot of this research shows that satirical content can sometimes undermine trust in political mm. institutions, in political actors, right? And so, you know, when I look at science communication and I look at hashtags like "Overly Honest Methods," which are researchers just being very frank, you know, and, and satirical, funny about the methods that they're using, right? But if you're not an expert in something, or if you're not a scientist yourself, that might look different Mm -hmm. to you, right? Does that then undermine one's trust in science, one's confidence in scientists, right? And these are
0: empirical questions that I think we haven't
1: necessarily asked
0: yet. This is Spark Science, and we're talking to Dr. Yo, a science communication researcher at the University of Utah. Well, I think it goes deeper than that, right? Like it goes to the point where um, you are asking, is it ethical to, um, you know, use people's emotions? I think it's. I personally think it's unethical to ignore that there are emotions involved entirely right? Isn't, I mean, in my opinion, isn't that unethical? And then when you were saying when there are people who it might undermine our expertise, well, that goes, that's a much deeper issue with the scientist stereotype that we know everything that, you know, only certain, only certain people are scientists and they look like this. And if we don't look like this, then that also undermines how, how our message is being perceived. So I think that that it, it, everything's all connected. So how do you disentangle that? Right? Yeah, yeah, and it's
1: it's a really great point about, you know, sort of who, who is seen as a scientist, right? And um
0: that is a uh large ship to turn and yeah. a very thorny problem. It's apparently the mountain I'm going to die on. Um but, <laughs> uh, but can you give us some examples like for our listeners? Give us a like a a story that kind of we can relate to or we can um kind of give us an example of what you mean by the humor that's being used online right now.
1: Yeah, so um, if you've
0: looked up any sort of
1: jokes about humor on science, you'll see that a lot of them actually are satire. So again, like overly honest methods or review for science. Um, But then a lot of them are also things like wordplay and anthropomorphism, right? So anthropomorphism, the idea of giving inanimate objects like human characteristics, um, and wordplay so puns and you know different meanings or same pronunciation and different meanings um so think about the very common meme uh selfie spelled with a c like c e l l f i e right yes. and there's a cell taking yeah so these are like really common jokes and actually um some of our first experiments were using this type of content, right? Identifying the types of humor in it and then taking parts of it out and then looking at how sort of knowledge, right, plays a role in that. Because we started, we, in terms of science and science jokes, it's sort of important that we know a little bit about science in order to get the joke, right? Right. Um, And so this has like a lot of implications for how we process that information, how deeply we think about it, right? Um, And I just think it's really funny. So when when we were doing all this and trying to characterize the types of humor that was in online and social media content, um, we came across a a lot of jokes, right? And a lot of them, I had a couple of undergraduates coding and some graduate students, and most of them were in communication, not trained as like bench scientists or field scientists. Um, and I'm I'm trained as a field and bench scientist. And I guess I thought a lot of it was funnier than other people <laughs> than, than what my students thought, right? And so right. I would give these presentations and I'd be showing them these like science jokes and memes and they'd all be kind of sitting there um, Stoneface. They didn't think it was very funny and I'd kind of be at the podium laughing to myself about these jokes, right?
0: Well, that, that's a really good point. I want to bring that up, like this idea of what is funny. Um, there isn't a universal, yeah. this, is, this is funny, that's a fact. Like, um, for instance, uh, I used to listen to Star Talk a lot and there's a comedian called uh, Eugene Merman. I don't know if you're aware of, of who Eugene Merman is. He's the voice of Gene in Bob's Burgers as well. Oh, yes now i know (laughs) and they were interviewing a nutritionalist and she was saying something like um you know they were talking about how different parts of the world the smaller like people who are actually physically like smaller in stature live longer and um they're being all very serious and then he this comedian goes yeah that's why babies live forever and I almost fell over, I was like on a treadmill and I like almost had a horrible accident. And I find I couldn't even handle how funny that was. Um, but the nutritionalist lady was not laughing <laughs> at all. She did not find that funny. Um, and it, like everything is cultural, right? Like what we find, maybe people in the Midwest, people in you know Pacific Northwest, maybe people who are from different cultural backgrounds, um, you know, different cultural backgrounds. So how do how are you studying that or is anyone studying that part? Like these what (laughs) works? What so I don't
1: I don't know of anybody. I mean, there have been people who've studied emotions in different cultures and emotion theorists are still sort of arguing about whether emotions are universal or not. Right. There's different camps. In terms of humor, the way I, um, my research team kind of we deal with that subjectivity of what is funny is we actually measure it, ask them to say how funny they thought that was. Right. Oh, wow. And it's really <laughs> interesting um, because what is the scale? Like, what do you mean? Yeah. So it's a sub- Self reported scale, did you find this like this the extent to which you found this not funny or funny, (laughs) right? And and in fact, we've actually included lame recently as one of the options because some people find nerdy science jokes not funny and
0: lame, right? And in fact, when we which is, is an issue with accessibility terms though. Right. So <laughs>
1: yeah. So when we look at sort of um, in our in our sort of statistical models, when we look at it, pe- people who don't find that content funny, they actually have negative effects, mm-hmm. right, on how they perceive the scientists right. and whether they want to like follow more science on social media. It actually has negative effects if they don't find it funny at all.
0: Right. And and it, it's not only cultural, but it's also generational. Right. I was just thinking about this and how um, the humor that I Grew up on was very like Conan O'Brien, Simpsons humor, and that just isn't the humor of twenty-year-olds now or twenty-something-year-olds. So right. it, it's very like I'll say a joke and they'll be like, "That's not fun." And you're yeah, right, there's you a lot, to turn
1: lot of insider, a lot of insider slang and content, you know, and even in science knowledge, it ha- There's a whole different domain of like insider content.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Yo for taking the time to speak with me about the science behind science communication. If you'd like to know more about her work, follow her on Twitter at Sarah K Yeo. That is S-A-R-A-K-Y-E-O. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the 2020 Statewide Home Stay Order. Our producers are Suzanne Blaise and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineer is Zarek Coakley. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, SparkScienceNow.com. And, if there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at SparkScienceNow. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.